0: Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. We're going to start in verse 23. But um, I'm actually going to, as we go through the points, I'm going to read the text as we go, rather than reading it at the beginning. Because what I want to do for the first part here is I want to do a quick recap of the last couple of Sundays. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, if anybody happened to not get to watch the video, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page uh, because the last two Sundays tie in, it's the same, it's, it's all part of one big event that's happening, what we're going to cover today. Uh, but also, uh, I don't want to lose the context, and so since we weren't together for two weeks, I want to make sure that we keep this together with its context. So, two two Sundays ago was the text where Paul had gone into the temple. He had gone into the temple to uh, finish out the, he was, he was, he'd been spending some time with four men who had taken a vow and that was the idea of the Jerusalem elders so that Paul would appear to be somebody who was following the law just to kind of uh, calm down some of the tension because there were rumors when he was still on, on, in his travels there were rumors reaching jerusalem and the jews in jerusalem and even the christians in jerusalem that paul was telling people not to follow the law at all n- telling people instructing them you should not circumcise your children and we talked about how those rumors weren't true paul had he had taught that circumcision was not essential for salvation, that the law was not essential for salvation. Only Christ can save. But Paul never told anybody, don't follow the law. Okay, is that on? Okay, so he never, he never told them not to follow the law. He just told them not to put their hope in the law, that their hope needs to be in Christ's sacrifice. So he was with these people, and he was trying to finish out this, this time. And he was purifying himself so that he wouldn't defile the temple according to the law. And so he'd gone into the temple for that. But when he was there, there were Jews from Asia Minor who were there who recognized him. And the Jews in Asia Minor um, were not pleased with Paul. They'd tried to have him taken out when he was in Ephesus. Um, And so they saw him in the temple. They raised a ruckus among the crowd and told them this is the man who's been who's been basically teaching heresy all over the world help us and they dragged him out of the temple and as they got after they got him out of the temple they shut the gates of the temple so he couldn't get in and defile the temple again and then they started to beat him we talked in that sermon about how there was some great symbolism in the fact that they got him out of the area that was, that was uh, just for um, Jews to be, and they closed the doors. And the symbolism there was that they had pushed God's messenger out of the temple, and they had pushed God's message of salvation out of the temple that he had given his messenger. And so in, in, in many ways, they were pushing God out of the temple. Um, and one of the commentators that I read we, I shared with you in that sermon said that um, this was kind of the final thing now that now that they had pushed God out of the temple there was really no purpose that the temple served anymore and it was shortly after this it wasn't very long after this that the temple was destroyed and never rebuilt so that was two weeks ago when, the, when they shut the gates of the temple on Paul Last week is what happened after that. They got him out of the temple. They were beating him, and the, the, Roman, um, the Roman commander who was in charge of everything in Jerusalem saw the ruckus happening down in the courtyard of the Gentiles, ran down, and tried to figure out what was going on. They pulled Paul out. And he couldn't figure out from the crowd what was the problem, and so he decided to take Paul out of their presence. He was going to take him um, up to the barracks, and as they're on their way, Paul asked if he could address the crowd. And so yesterday or last week's text was Paul's defense of himself when he got a chance to address the crowd and give an apologetic for why he believed what he believed, a uh, defense for his conversion from... Um, Old Testament style Judaism to Christianity. Um and we talked about how it was necessary in Old Testament law if you were going to defend something in court you had to have you had to have a, a wit you had to have two or three witnesses at least. And so Paul as he gives his defense gives the account of his time traveling to Damascus um all the stuff that happened leading up to that with the persecution of the church, Paul gave three different witnesses to his testimony. Um, And within each one of those, there were further people who could have borne witness as well. But those three witnesses were Paul, his own testimony counts. Um, And so he talked about his, um, his time as a Pharisee, persecuting the church, uh, arresting people, even approving of Stephen's death. But then that changed on the road to Damascus. And Paul's companions could have also given testimony to what took place as they, they did not understand what the voice was saying, but they saw the light and they heard the voice. The second testimony was a testimony of God as the things that happened on the road to Damascus were things that that screamed Old Testament language about encounters with God. And so it was clearly something that where God was intervening in his trip. And when he was spoken to, he asked, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. And so God has intervened, intercepted Paul on his trip. And Jesus speaks audibly to him and calls him to follow him. So God is the second witness. And the third witness is Ananias, who was a devout, God-fearing Jew in um, Damascus, and he he was somebody that all the Jews in Damascus respected and revered because he was so um, in tune and and, uh, in an intimate relationship with God. And while Ananias was praying, God spoke to him and said, there's a man named Saul here. I want you to go, and I want you to pray over him. He will receive a sight again, and I want you to confirm the call that I've put on his life. And so Ananias is the third witness, and I think we could also make the argument that anybody who would, who would have vouched for Ananias's walk with, with God would also um, indirectly uh, bear witness to the fact that Ananias heard God's voice, Um, and followed God's instructions, which were to confirm Paul's conversion. So he gave three witnesses as he gave his defense to the crowd. But the problem that we talked about at the end of the sermon last week was that the the root of the issue was um, not that Paul necessarily had converted, but that there was an issue in the hearts of the Jews because Paul had gotten them to quiet down. They were listening to him. We don't know from the text if any of them were beginning to maybe be swayed to Paul's argument as he gave the three de- defenses or the three testimonies. Um, but if they were, the moment Paul said, I received a vision from the Lord in, um, in saying that the people in Jerusalem will not listen to me will not listen to you, so I'm sending you to the Gentiles. The moment he said that, it all broke loose again. And so if anybody was swayed up to that point, that pushed them over the edge. And so what we talked about was the root of the problem was more than anything that we don't like to hear that we're... Not listening to God. We don't like to hear that we're bad. We, don't, we, we like to think human. the human nature that's fallen is to believe that we are inherently good. It's to believe that because I'm not as bad as other people that I might compare myself to, that I must be right with God. And that's, that's a major problem. We are not inherently good. We don't have anything good in us. The only thing good that can come out of us, we discussed last week, was that whatever god might be doing a righteous and holy god might be doing through us because our nature is fallen and we are sinful we are not inherently good and you don't have to look very far in history or in the world today to see the demonstration that man is not inherently good in his nature all right so that gets us up to our text today Today, what we're going to do is um, we're going to look at what, with the remaining time we have, we're going to look at what happens next in the narrative. We're going to be focusing on three injustices that were done to Paul. So today's going to be mostly informative. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about the injustices. We're, I'm going to give you a little bit of background to each of those so that maybe we understand it a little bit more. And then we will come back to this text next week, and I will go in deeper with uh, how Paul responds to those injustices, um, how we apply that to our own lives today um, with injustices that might be done to us, and how we respond. So next week, we will dig into more of the teaching aspect of this. Today's going to be more informative and background study um, as we continue with this narrative that is a lengthy part of Acts, starting when Paul first arrived from his last missionary journey back in Jerusalem. So let's pray real quickly, and then we will get into injustice number one. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for Paul's life. His um, life as an example for us. Um, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be people who have the resolve that Paul had, that we would be willing to lay down our life if necessary for Christ, for he laid down his life for us. Um, God, we pray that that as we dig in today and we look at it again next week, that you will teach us about your character of justice. Justice is born out of you. Um, Help us to know how to imitate that character of justice. In Jesus' name. All right. Injustice number one comes from verses 23 to 29. And injustice number one was that an innocent man was to be flogged. So if you are looking in your text, in your Bibles, starting verse 23. So this is, the crowd has been, they dragged him out. They've been beating him. He gave the testimony. They started in an uproar again. And so the, the, Uh, Roman commanders trying to get Paul out of there and figure out what is going on. Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful? you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. All right, so the first injustice is that he was going to be flogged. He'd been put in chains and they'd stretched him out and they were about to flog him until Paul asked them the question if it was legal for him to do that. Now, if you look at the text... um, And I didn't look in other versions, so I don't know if other versions word it differently, but the ESV words, it it says that he was to be examined by flogging. In other words, we will inflict pain upon you to get the information out of you that we want. We will inflict pain upon you to get information out of you. If you think about our culture today, we have detectives who are trying to get information out of people that they have arrested uh, for crimes. They use psychological tricks sometimes just to get suspects to confess. Uh, he or she might bargain for a lesser sentence if they give a confession. Um, they might play good cop, bad cop in order to get uh, some information out of somebody. But the Romans didn't play mind games to get information from someone. They just beat you with a whip until the pain was so excruciating that the suspect talked. This is how they were, he instructed the soldiers to examine Paul. Stretch him out, beat him until he's willing to talk. So we can find out what this is all about. He couldn't get it from the crowd. He tried, but there's too much chaos. When Paul, decide, when Paul asked to talk to them, he thought maybe as Paul's, um, as Paul's talking to the crowd, maybe I'll figure some of this out. But it didn't work, and the crowd was in an uproar again. So, he's, so he says, okay, this is how we do it in Rome. Take him, tie him up, beat him in order to find out what's going on. It makes me appreciate the founders of our country and the concept upon which our criminal justice system um, is designed to work. In Rome, you were guilty until you could prove that you were innocent. In America, you're innocent until, you can, or, until they can prove that you're guilty. There are two points here though, that I think are important for us to know about the situation. The first one is that it was punishable by immediate death if someone lied about being a Roman citizen. If you said you're a Roman citizen, they found out you were lying, the punishment was they put you to death immediately. So when Paul claims Roman citizenship, you'll notice, according to Luke's text, they didn't like, they don't seem to question it. They, rather than question to find out if he's telling a lie they instantly kick into panic mode and how do we fix this because, honestly, why would anybody make a claim like that if if it wasn't true when they know that if they're found out, they're going to be put to death? So rather than investigate, they go into, let's fix what we've just done because we've done something majorly wrong. So it's important to know that it was... Punishable by immediate death if someone lied about being a Roman citizen. The other thing that is important to know here is that the commander and the soldiers who were under his command were um, in serious violation of Roman law. There are two places in the, well, one in the text, one that we know from history. The one in the text, Luke tells us first, is that soldiers can get in major trouble for putting a Roman citizen in chains. Soldiers can get in major trouble for just putting a Roman citizen in chains. Rome took care of its citizens. So you had some special privileges as a Roman citizen. Now, not not everybody who lived in the Roman Empire was a citizen of Rome. It was a special status. So you didn't necessarily assume that everybody who was from a Roman city or whatever was a citizen of Rome. It was a special status. The The Tribune tells Paul that he had to actually purchase his citizenship and he had to pay a big price for it. There was a lot of bribery that took place back in in this time in order to get that status of Roman citizen. But Paul was one because of birth. And so he had already put a Roman citizen in chains and was in major violation of Roman law. The second thing that we know from history is that this type of f- flogging was most likely, the whip that they were going to use was most likely what scholars think um, is commonly known as like the cat of nine tails. It was, um, in fact, there's a description I'll read to you. F.F. Um, f. Bruce in his commentary is describing this instrument, this instrument that they were going to use. And so... He says this, if the instrument used was the scourge, that's what, another word for it, that most scholars think was because of what history tells us about how Roman si- uh, soldiers handled situations like this, if the instrument used was the scourge, this was a fearful instrument of torture consisting of leather thongs weighted with rough pieces of metal or bone and attached to a stout wooden handle. And then he goes on to say this, if a man did not actually die under the scourge, he might well be crippled for life. This is, if, if that's what they were going to use, that's what would have been used on Jesus. It just, it, it just tears flesh, chunks of flesh off your body because those pieces of metal or bone, they grab the flesh and they're torn off when they pull the whip back. People frequently died under that or were crippled for life. So that's the first injustice. Paul was about to face that. He'd been chained, he shouldn't have been, and he's about to face that kind of a beating that could have seriously affected his life or maybe even taken his life. All right, injustice number two an innocent man was punched in the face. So this picks up in verse 30, goes through chapter 23, verse 5. An innocent man was punched in the face. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, he um, unbound him, so he let Paul out of the chains, commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So we're going to have a meeting, and we're going to figure out what the deal is here so we can get peace back To Jerusalem. Verse 1 of chapter 23, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you ordered me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That um, is part of the law. All right, So the first, so the second one is that an innocent man, Paul hasn't done anything wrong. He certainly hasn't gotten far enough into a trial for them to even falsely accuse him, and he is struck in the face, which was against the Old Testament law. They were to treat people who were on trial. The, the high priest was to treat people on trial with respect and treat them well until there was a punishment that was deserved. So why did Ananias then command someone to strike Paul on the mouth? I mean, all Paul has said is one, one sentence, and, he, and, and he's already... The high priest is already angry. Most likely, it's because Paul, being a Christ follower, had claimed that he'd lived a faithful life before God, and the Jews are not people who are going to buy into Christ Jesus being the Messiah. And so here's a man who says, who's been proclaiming for decades now that Jesus is the Messiah that God had promised in the Old Testament, and now he comes before the Sanhedrin and he says, I'm... I've lived a faithful life. I'm blameless before God. And so Ananias probably considered that to be blasphemy. But we, as we discussed at the beginning of the sermon, as we discussed two weeks ago, and even the f- week before that when Paul first arrived in Jerusalem, all of these things that he's been uh, accused of are not true. He hasn't committed blasphemy. He hasn't broken the law. He Actually, he is a person who has spent his whole life studying God's law. And in the study of God's law, he's just come to understand that Jesus actually fulfills the Messianic prophecy that God had given in the Old Testament looking forward to when he would come. And so he was actually living in faithfulness to God's law. And that's what he's been trying to teach people on his missionary journeys. He's been trying to bear witness to that with the crowd in Jerusalem. And now he's trying to convince the, the Sanhedrin that he, his interpretation of the law, and the fulfillment in Jesus is is truth. So let's talk a little bit about Ananias because he's an interesting character. He was the chief priest here. Um, This is not to be confused with Annas, who was also a chief priest, but Annas was the chief priest in 6 to 15 A.D., He was also present at the time. He was not chief priest anymore, but he was present at the time of Jesus' trial. But this is Ananias. He was high priest from 47 to 59 AD. So much later, Paul's been gone for some time. There's speculation among uh, commentators as to why Paul might not have known that Ananias was the high priest. And there's lots of different things that people have suggested, but I think it's safe to say that if, if for what, no other reason at all, Paul hasn't been in Jerusalem for decades, he probably didn't even know who Ananias was. And if, which sometimes happens, if the high priest was not in his high priestly garb, then he would have looked like a member of the Sanhedrin. So Paul wouldn't have known necessarily who this guy was. He was not the high priest when Paul was a Pharisee. But Ananias was known for his cruelty toward the people. So it's not shocking. If that's his reputation, it's not shocking that the instant that he gets um, a little thing to irritate him that he would strike out with violence. Josephus the the Jewish historian said that Ananias hoarded money so he was greedy. He hoarded money and that when the people tithed and it was supposed to go to the priests Ananias used violence and took that tithe away from the priests. So he was greedy and he was breaking God's law that he had handed down through Moses because the priests were supposed to be paid, uh, whether that's in money or whether that's in, like, offerings that they could use for food, whatever it it was. The priests were to receive that tithe, and Josephus tells us that Ananias was known to use violence to take that for himself. So he was cruel. He was violent so much so that in the latter half of the decade from the 50... From 50 to 60 AD, in the latter half of that decade, there was a a revolt in um, Jerusalem. Um, The people rose up against Rome, and in the midst of that revolt, Ananias' own people assassinated him. He was a nice guy. So... It's not surprising then that when Paul said, i lived a life blameless before the Lord, that uh, he gets irritated and tells someone to punch him. So that was injustice number two. Injustice number three, again, next week we will come back and we'll look at how Paul responds to these. Injustice number three is that an innocent man was standing trial as a lawbreaker. If you are innocent, it is it's bothersome enough to be uh, accused of being a lawbreaker and, and then to go through the humiliation of being put on trial. So Paul's an innocent man standing trial as a lawbreaker. But again, Paul had done nothing wrong. And he's being treated not even as just a common criminal, he's being treated as someone who would who was a heresy, or a heretic, teaching heresy. He was being treated as somebody who was trying to get people to, to rise up against what Jews had been taught for millennia and to believe something different. So he's brought before the Sanhedrin. He's innocent, but he's put on trial before the Sanhedrin. This in itself is intimidating, because if they all were there, then there was probably 70 people there, and they sit in this half circle, and you're in the middle, and so you got 70 people that are surrounding you, basically, bearing down on you, and if you're on trial, they're probably not friendly. So Paul recognizes, though, that there are two groups of people, I mean, he knows this, but he two groups of people in the Sanhedrin, there are Pharisees and there are Sadducees. At one time, the Sanhedrin was mostly made up of Sadducees, but Pharisees over time had gained some uh, influence and they had become part of the group. And so it's two different groups of people, kind of like our government's run by um, two major different parties that have different philosophies in life. But yet, the Pharisees and and the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. But the Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed that there was, after this life, there was a resurrection that would take place and there was an afterlife. And the Pharisees believed that once you died, life was over. They didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in angels or demons. And so, Paul, knowing this, knowing that there is um, a he's got this whole group of people that are they've united and come t- come together in a common cause because they don't like Paul. The Pharisees don't like Paul's message of Christ being the r- Messiah. The Sadducees don't like anything about Paul's message because his message is one of not only Christ being the Messiah but also one that comes is born out of pharisaical thought also actually so um so they both have a common enemy in paul but paul recognizes that there's this tension between them and he actually has something in common with the pharisees because he was a pharisee at one time and so paul makes the statement i am on trial today because of my belief in the resurrection from the dead um Starting in verse six, he perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was instantly divided and then Luke goes on to explain what I've already told you, that the Pharisees believed in resurrection, the Sadducees did not. But listen to what the Pharisees say. As they start now, rather than arguing with Paul, they start arguing with the Sadducees. They say um, in verse verse 9, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And then the dissension became violent to the point where the tribune had to step in. So it's interesting to me how Paul is so good at reading crowds and reading people, and he knows here's a group of people that actually I have something in common with, and my message is one of resurrection of the dead, and they believe in it, and these people don't. And so he just makes one statement, and instantly the the atmosphere changes. It's no longer... 70 versus Paul it's now Paul and half the crowd against the other side that didn't believe in it and and I find it ironic that the Pharisees are actually now claiming this man has done nothing wrong they would not approve of his message of Jesus being the Messiah but they're okay with saying he hasn't done anything wrong here because now if they if they if they still stand up and say you're in the wrong then they're they're discrediting their own argument that there is a resurrection of the dead. So, the council's divided. Considering the fact that the resurrection of the dead is an essential truth to the gospel, because if there is no resurrection, then Christ didn't rise from the dead, right? Considering that that's an essential truth of the gospel, Paul gets half the crowd on the same page with him um, and helps them to understand what I'm teaching is actually pharisaical thought. Like outside of his belief that Jesus is the Messiah everything else that he is teaching that he has been teaching on his miss- his missionary journeys is in line with what the Pharisees teach. He hasn't broken the law. He hasn't taught people not to follow the law. He hasn't anything that's false they believe there's a resurrection of the dead they believe there's an afterlife that you either spend eternity in god's presence with him or spend eternity out of god's presence and so same system of thought the only difference is paul in his study of the law has been able to understand how jesus fulfills all those prophecies And the Pharisees have not yet. Um, There were actually, when Jesus was put on trial, there were actually two Pharisees that did believe in him. Um, And so there was probably hope in Paul's mind that because they believe in the resurrection of the dead and because they're looking for the coming of the Messiah, that maybe there would be hope for some of the Pharisees to believe in his message. But it's amazing how quickly the tide when Paul said that, um, they went from being buddy buddy as they were trying to oppose the truth that Paul was proclaiming, to now opposing each other. And here is the problem: because we eventually, if you if you oppose the truth, eventually your your claims and your belief system that don't stand on the truth will crumble, and that's what's happening among the Sanhedrin. All right, so those are the three injustices that he was going to be flogged when he shouldn't have been even bound, that he was struck in the face when he hadn't even been tried, and that he was put through this whole thing even though he wasn't a lawbreaker in any way. All right, so next week when we come together we're going to look at how Paul responds to those and then we're going to look at God's character of justice and what we need to understand because we live in a time when persecution and injustice is is in our backyard and I'm I'll talk more about that next week too um it is it's already happening Uh, in other places in the world. It's already starting to happen in America. Injustice is going to be thrust upon us, and we need to know how we respond. We need to be able to respond in a godly way that's biblical so that we are being faithful in all of that. So we will get into that next week. Um, It was my intention. When I realized I needed to recap, and that was going to take up part of our time, it did become by design that I'm leaving you hanging so you are eager to get back next week. Let's pray, and then um, we will close with the doxology. God, we thank you so much for um, Paul's example. Um, it's it's not pleasing that an innocent person who has done nothing but just taught your love and your faithfulness, and how we can be benefit we can benefit from your love and faithfulness through what you did in Jesus. Um, It's not pleasing that he had to go through what he did. But I thank you that we have that as an example. We're going to look next week to see how Paul responds. We're going to look at how we need to respond. And it's all got to, it has to come out of your character and be according to your word. Um, That's where we learn what justice is. And that's where we learn how to respond when injustice creeps into our lives. Lord, we pray for those who um, couldn't be here today. We ask that you would, that your presence would be with them and that they would know and that you would teach them and grow them. And that all of us, as we're reading this month through the fruit of the Spirit, that all of us would see you maturing us in that to become more and more in your image. In Jesus' name, amen.